0: P.F.K. in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, progressives and Biden, what is to be done about the 2024 election? Bhaskar Sunkara, president of the nation, has some comments. Also, Ron DeSantis is campaigning for president, promising to stop woke history, that is, to stop teaching about slavery and its legacy of institutional racism. Adam Hochschild found the history guide DeSantis wants. It's the Hillsdale College 1776 curriculum. He reports on what's in it and what's not later in the hour. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor at large of the American Prospect. Harold, welcome back.
1: Always good to be here, John.
0: Well, we start today with news of the class struggle in America, a regular feature of this broadcast. It's been a great week for labor. We've seen some significant victories, starting with interns and residents at a big Philadelphia hospital. Tell us about that one.
1: Yeah, that was the hospital that's affiliated with the University of Pennsylvania, which is one of the Ivies and a private, not a public college, its name notwithstanding, HenMed. Uh, there the interns and residents voted by a huge margin, something over 800 to something a little over 100, to join the Committee on Interns and Residents, which is a uh, division of uh, SEIU. And it turns out, this is what really piqued my interest, this is a unit of 1,400 doctors, and uh, it turns out that this is the largest unionization of any kind in the city of Philadelphia in the last 53 years. Wow. What really intrigued me was, you know, we're not talking someplace in the Deep South. We're talking about a Northeastern city that has a substantial history of pro-union activity and union presence. And yet, given all of the obstacles that have formed over the last half century to organizing private sector workers, This is the largest unionization in the past half century. Now, what it also suggests to me is something that I've been writing about in the prospect for some time, which is that the only workers who really can unionize, given all of the holes in the National Labor Relations Act, uh, which was designed to protect workers when they seek to unionize, uh, the only workers who really are successful at unionizing are workers so that are not easily replaceable, which doctors obviously are not. But let me say one thing about that.
0: We've seen very important union activity by nurses. We've also seen strikes of nursing assistants and, and other lower-level employees, but doctors have always seemed to be a special case. They are professionals, they don't have you know working class consciousness.
1: Well, What you're seeing is, to a certain degree, the proletarianization of professionals. Doctors used to control their own schedules. Then, as a matter of uh, their own financial interest, most of them have been compelled to join one doctor's group or another or go to work uh, for a hospital, and hospitals have gone from nonprofit to increasingly owned by profit-driven companies or even private equity. And so doctors, like many professionals, have found themselves to be simply employees with very little control over uh, you know, how long they can care for a patient and that sort of thing. So we're, we're seeing that at, uh, at one end of the spectrum. And it, it, emblematic of this, the museum staff at the University of Pennsylvania organized uh, recently and the grad students are almost certain to follow the pattern of the grad students, uh, TAs and RAs at at the other Ivies and many other colleges and universities, and voting to go union probably sometime during the spring term.
0: And the second big victory of the week was, of all places, in Georgia. This one was a complete surprise to me.
1: Yeah, and I think this is the most significant, because there is a lot of union good news, but this is the one that really is the stunner and even beyond that could portend a reversal in some of the decline of of private sector unions. This was a factory which has been around owned by the same family since 1927. Bluebird is the name of the company, and they make school buses. And lo and behold, school districts are now trying to get electric school buses and more low and more behold, (laughs) the Biden legislation over the past two years now allots significant funding uh, for the manufacture of things like electric school buses. And recently, the Environmental Protection Agency, following the dictates of the Inflation Reduction Act, which is really a green energy act, said that if you receive some of these funds, uh, you you can't really uh, wage an anti-union campaign. We're putting that as a condition on your uh, receipt of these funds, and Bluebird, it turns out, had received forty million bucks, uh, precisely uh, to to you know make electric buses, and and there they are now. That said, the United Steelworkers, which has some very skilled organizers down south, they, they began meeting with workers at this factory, which is in Southwest Georgia, which is a largely uh, working class poor African-American workforce, about the same size as pen med doctors, by the way, about 1,400, They began meeting with them as far back as 2018, when there was no Biden administration and no landmark Biden administration laws. And it was beginning to take off then, uh, the uh, lead organizer told me they started meeting in, li- in, in the library, but they had to move because there wasn't room, uh, more and more joined, um, then it kind of went on hiatus during the pandemic, but it heated up again in 2021, and uh, they it, it is possible they could have won without these uh, administration uh, restrictions on what companies can do because those have only uh, been be, just begun to be put in place in the last couple of months. Anyway, they held an election on Friday, and the uh, workers. Voted by a substantial margin, not quite two to one, but substantial, to uh, <clears throat> join the steelworkers. Uh, and you know, unions have lost one factory after another in the South. Uh, all of those auto transplant factories at uh, foreign uh, German and Japanese companies, and some aerospace factories too, that have been built in Tennessee, and Mississippi, and Alabama, and Georgia, and South Carolina, in particular the unions are batting about zero. And this is a real reversal of that. And it may just mean that with this extra bit of oomph uh, from the rules that Biden's agencies are setting following the terms of, of of this landmark legislation, that unions might have a better prospect of finally beginning to organize those factories. And I should add, Already, the number of factories that are sort of on the drawing boards because of this legislation, most of them set in, in red states and in states where unions have been getting nowhere for at least half a century, union drives there might indeed be possible. So this, is, uh, this Georgia result in particular, I think, is really significant.
0: Well, now it's time for Your Minnesota Moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. This week, the Minnesota legislature passed a landmark bill protecting Amazon warehouse workers. Of course, Amazon warehouses are terrible employers, lots of injuries, brutal pace of work. You've emphasized massive turnover. This bill in Minnesota requires several things. Employers have to provide warehouse workers with written information about all the quotas and performance standards they are subject to. They have to be told how those quotas and standards are determined. And they have to provide this information in the worker's primary language. This is a very big deal at the Amazon warehouse uh, south of Minneapolis uh, because this is a largely Somali population of immigrant workers and their families. The bill also says employers cannot fire or take disciplinary action against a worker who fails to meet a quota that wasn't disclosed, which is one of the main ways they've gotten rid of uh, union organizers. And it mandates that if Amazon or a particular worksite has an injury rate 30% higher than that year's industry average, the state commissioner of labor will open an investigation and the bill establishes a private right of action for workers that means current or former workers can bring a civil suit for damages to obtain compliance with this law this doesn't just cover amazon warehouses it applies to all warehouses with more than 250 workers in the state one site or a thousand workers across the state but basically that is the amazon warehouses now let's note this is a very different route to Amazon than the Amazon Workers Union,
1: it is, and it's it's the kind of thing that you're seeing in progressive states, because progressive states can't really weigh in to help uh, workers unionize, even though they would like to. Federal law preempts that, and the federal law is is the National Labor Relations Act, which is a piece of Swiss cheese where the holes are bigger than the cheese. <laughs> We've seen variations of this but i haven't seen variations of this specifically on amazon and on warehouse workers and obviously this is a way to take away a little bit of the fear factor when workers are trying to unionize because amazon like many employers has you know said oh well we're firing you because you can't meet your quotas they can't say we're firing you because you're involved in a union organizing drive because that's against the law but you know this really helps and you know it it raises the bar on other blue states. I mean, the state with the most warehouses is California. And I see no reason why a bill like this shouldn't be passed by the California legislature and signed by Gavin Newsom. Those workers need a lot of help. It's a little bit different in California since the mega companies like Amazon and Walmart, uh, some of them, well, Amazon does own its own warehouses. Walmart does not, but they de facto control them but it would, be a, it would be a big help in, in states where there are concentration of warehouses and Lord knows California's got them.
0: And there's one more union victory in the news uh, this week. Dancers at a North Hollywood topless bar will become the only strippers in the country to gain union recognition after the club's management finally threw in the towel after fighting an NLRB election result for months and they've agreed to recognize their union Actors' Equity will represent the dancers of Star Garden in contract negotiations. What is Actors' Equity?
1: Well, that's mainly the union uh, that uh, arose chiefly in New York, uh, representing uh, workers on Broadway, but it's generally the Actors' Union outside of recorded media. So it's not the Screen Actors Guild or uh, AFTRA or anything like that, but it's staged it's stage performers everywhere. And I think initially, uh Actors' Equity did include uh, the vaudeville acts back when there was such a thing as vaudeville. Yeah, they've been around it, for a really long time. Actors they've been Equity. around for a really long time. I don't know that they actually uh, covered uh, burlesque back when burlesque existed, but, uh you know, 70 or 80 years after the demise of those forms of entertainment. They uh, seem to be finally catching up to the uh, current day version of that.
0: Yeah, I learned Actors Equity represents 51,000 actors in live stage theatrical performances. They're part of the AFL CIO.
1: Oh, have been for a long time.
0: And these particular workers uh, have their biggest complaints are about working conditions and on-the-job safety, not being mauled by patrons, and getting management to cut off alcohol for unruly drunks. The stories in the paper uh, this week emphasized that they picketed the club every weekend for months and succeeded in winning the support of the club's patrons who stopped going there. So it's a surprising victory. I wonder if this fits your theory about who can be unionized. Are dancers at strip clubs like
1: teaching assistants at universities? Uh, Well, in this particular, they clearly are. And, uh, you know, exploitation comes in many forms. But exploitation comes. And the question is, how do you respond to that? And no matter where you work, unionization probably makes a good deal of sense.
0: And the other thing you've emphasized is which workers are replaceable and which workers are hard to replace. And in this case, apparently, the answers at script clubs are not so easy to replace.
1: I guess not. Some are more replaceable than others, but that's true in any line of work. And another one of the
0: striking things about this is, this is a small group of workers. It's about 20 workers. It's a single work site with its own private uh, ownership. This is one of the most difficult organizing challenges anywhere, and most unions wouldn't touch this. Another topic, I'm afraid we have to talk about Joe Manchin again, but why?
1: Well... Uh, in the course of these tortuous negotiations that I kind of wish weren't going on about the debt ceiling, one of the things that the House Republicans chunked into their own bill was uh, something that would uh, ease permitting on, uh, on pipelines, which is to say really helping, obviously, the fossil fuel industry. Uh, For its part, uh, liberal Democrats on the Hill have been developing legislation to uh, ease permitting for uh, electric transmission lines, which is the way you transmit wind and solar power. They don't move through pipelines. That's not the kind of stuff that uh, they are not of that stuff, literally. And so uh, some sort of compromise, uh, whether it's attached to whatever emerges with the debt ceiling business or not, appears possible. Uh, But uh, Joe Manchin has uh, been emphatic that part of his understanding in going along with passing the Scale Down Inflation Reduction Act. Was that permitting that would allow uh, a particular pipeline to, you know, b- begin in his home state of West Virginia and go uh, go, go around and help uh, the fossil fuel industry in West Virginia, which he owns personally a chunk of, uh, that that would go through. Um, and most Democrats, uh, when presented with this late last year, did not vote for it, and it died. So the Biden administration has now resurrected uh, Manchin's proposal as part of the bargain. And, you know, he's making all kinds of noises about, uh, you know, wanting to repeal the Inflation Reduction Act. And of course, there's a limit to how much the Democrats can oppose him because they need him to uh, be re-elected uh, in West Virginia if they're gonna maintain their Senate majority, thin as it already is. And the Biden people and other Democrats are also afraid that he might run as an independent candidate for president, uh, which would probably help the Republican who is probably going to be Donald Trump. Uh, so uh, unfortunately, the uh, irresistible force of climate change once again has collided with the immovable object of Joe Manchin and uh, whatever comes out of Capitol Hill on permitting is going to be on Joe Manchin's terms. We would assume it, it would permit both uh, the pipelines and grid construction. And, you know, building these high high wire power lines, getting clearances, because they go across innumerable jurisdictions, you know, uh, takes forever. There was just one that was... Uh, just approved recently that will uh, bring uh, wind and solar power from Wyoming to California. It took 18 years oh. for that to uh, get its approval. And, and the legislation that the liberal Democrats on the Hill had uh, were drafting had said, no, this should be, you know, with plenty of, com- of community input, this should really be uh, s- subject just to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission which is pretty much the case with oil and gas pipelines now. So why not with the cleaner sources as well?
0: I saw that the the Democrats' omnibus electricity transmission bill is uh, sponsored uh, by our own Mike Levin, Democrat of uh, San Diego, along with Sean Caston of Illinois, who said, quote, we have to build transmission lines at three to five times the current rate today There are 2,000 gigawatts of wind and solar power available, but half of it is waiting to be connected with consumers since the current grid can't handle that much. So this is is really the key bottleneck in replacing fossil fuels.
1: In in terms of uh, generating electric power uh, in buildings, uh, yeah, uh, it it absolutely is. I mean, it's apart from how we power uh, transportation. Yeah. But as, in terms of you know stationary sources of pollution, this is key.
0: Finally, what is to be done about Dianne Feinstein? 89 years old, she returned to the Senate uh, last week after having been away for three months with that serious uh, shingles virus infection. Uh, she cast her second vote on the Senate floor Tuesday, and a reporter afterwards asked her what she'd heard from her Senate colleagues, uh, wishing her well about her return. What have I heard about what, she asked? About your return, the reporter replied. I haven't been gone, she said. I haven't been gone. I've been working. And then the reporter said, you've been working from home. Is that what you're saying? And she replied, no, I've been here. I've been voting. Please, either
1: know or don't know. And then she walked away. This does not sound good to me. No, it doesn't sound good. I would, I, you know, I, I would point out that when she, uh, in 2017, said she was going to run again. I, I wrote a column in the L.A. Times that just factored in the life expectancy for, uh, at that point, she was what, 83? 83-year-old uh, white females. And uh, it uh, suggested that, the, you know her, the median life expectancy of such folks uh, would have been uh, to the point about three months after she was out of office, which meant there was a 50/50 chance, essentially, that she wouldn't make it. And of course, you know, this also uh, th- this data didn't deal with mental and cognitive decline. But we're, uh, we're, we're clearly seeing it. And, you know, shame on the Democrats for not taking this more seriously when she was uh, deciding to run again, uh, you know, six years ago. That was, to put it mildly, a mistake.
0: Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold.
1: Thank you, John. Good to be here as always. <laughs>
0: It's the same old story. This is living in the USA and I'm John Weiner talking about politics, thinking about the left. Maybe you heard the news, Joe Biden is running for re-election. Many of our friends are worried about his decision. For comment, we turn to Bhaskar Sunkara, he's president of the nation founding editor of Jacobin, and author of the book, The Socialist Manifesto. He's also been a columnist for the Guardian US edition, and he's written for the New York Times, Vox, and the Washington Post. Bascar, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Well, our goal is to make sure Donald Trump does not become president again, or any other Republican. Joe Biden
2: is running. Are you supporting him? I'm not supporting uh, Joe Biden for president. You know, if there's a left wing, if there's a progressive challenge to him in the primary that's that's serious, that is is looking to build a base, I'll support that challenge. But I will be voting for whoever ends up the winner of the Democratic primary, as long as they're ready to oppose a reactionary uh, Republican party. Well, Joe Biden of course,
0: is an incumbent and incumbents usually win. Joe Biden beat a sitting president in an election less than three years ago by 7 million votes. He'll be running against the same guy this time, it looks like. So he ought to be able to win. But a lot of our friends are worried about him and and wonder if there's an alternative. First of all, because he's old. If he wins, he'll be 86 at the end of his second term, by far the oldest president ever. Don't you think he's probably
2: too old to serve another full term? No, I don't think that's the main strike against Biden. I think there's a lot of speculation about his cognitive skills, about his energy, his commitment to the job, and I don't, I don't think that's a line of criticism the left should be pursuing against him. We should be looking at how after a promising start to his administration, after saying he had New Deal sized ambitions, how he's uh, walked back. And obviously he doesn't have both houses of, of Congress. He's facing a lot of barriers. He's facing Republican obstructionism. He's facing a divided party. But Biden has not used his bully pulpit to one, defend entitlement programs or two, to present a vision of a different America, a pro worker United States. It seemed like there was some promise early on, especially when Bernie, it seemed like was his closest outside partner in his administration. I I think a lot of that has receded, and I think that's where we should criticize Biden. Uh, I, I just don't think we're on strong grounds to speculate about his health. And if anything, I think he's been more coherent in many of his recent speaking events including the State of the Union this year, probably more active being out there and visible than he was in um, much of 2022 and 2021. And there's another
0: problem with Biden's candidacy, which is related to his age, which is that if something does happen to him, if he's incapacitated by a stroke or a heart attack, uh, his vice president will assume the duties of president and his running mate, again, will be Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris is not a successful or popular figure in American politics. She she did enter the 2020 presidential primary, but she got so little support she withdrew before the first state voted. She got zero votes among Democrats when she ran for president three years ago.
2: What kind of a problem or challenge is this right now? I mean, I think she was a strange choice to begin with. Biden, Obviously backed himself into a corner. I mean he he won, pledged that he would have a a woman vice president, which is fine, but there was a lot of other uh, qualified candidates. Harris, it seemed like was a promising politician who just needed a shot, but for whatever reason, she was unable to really galvanize much support. Is she a drag on the ticket? Maybe. I'm not sure how much it matters uh, that, that to have a vice president like Harris. Um, uh, maybe her debate performance will really play an outsized role just because of Biden's age. But in both cases, you know, these are incumbents. They should command the advantages of, of having the White House bully pulpit. They should benefit from the fact the economy seems to be improving They should benefit from the fact that people are very angry at the Republican Party, particularly for, you know, its campaign against abortion rights. You know, I I think that Biden comes into this contest by default as the favorite, and I'm not sure his vice president really matters. And if Harris did become president because Biden dies or is unable to uh, serve, I think we could expect something very similar in her presidency than we we did from a Biden uh, presidency.
0: Couple of other potential problems. The news last week was that the UAW has refused to endorse Biden for re-election. UAW, of course, historically was the most powerful force in America pushing for social democratic government. Today they say they're concerned about Biden
2: pushing the transition to electric vehicles. Is that a problem? Well, I think it's a very bold decision. I think it is really well warranted. And if I'm not mistaken, they are withholding a endorsement until concerns are met and this relates to the transition in the auto industry to all electric vehicles and whether or not some of this transition would undermine the position of unionized workers and 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 the uaw it wasn't a blanket we're not going to endorse biden under any circumstance so there's still plenty of time between now and the election I'm sure, um, especially given where a lot of their uh, unionized uh, workers are in in places like Michigan, Biden will be keen to have that endorsement, to have that the the canvassing, the money, everything, everything else flowing his way. And hopefully they come to a agreement. I I do think it's very significant for the labor movement in a good way, and that it, it reminds Democratic Party politicians that the support of labor is conditional. And of course, we're all very worried about the far right. We're very worried about what a return of Trump or potentially even worse, a uh, DeSantis administration would be like. But I think it sends an important message. And the UAW, of course, was just recently uh, won over by a left wing leadership slate and has a lot of rank and file um, energy right now and might be gearing up for a potential uh, strike sometime later this year so i think it sets them up in a really good position to keep biden honest and especially if there's a strike it's very common for governments and of course you saw this with the rail strike to sell out center left governments to sell out their working class constituency in the name of labor peace to try to win over middle class voters and others who might be disrupted by strike actions. And with the potential for both a to strike and a UAW strike, um, you know, we'll be in a battle for public opinion. But we don't want Biden to weigh in on the uh, on the other side like he did with the uh, potential railroad worker strike.
0: Inside the Democratic Party, there's two announced uh, challengers to Biden, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and Marianne Williamson. What do you think uh, this is the significance of their candidacies?
2: Well, I think the um, the Kennedy campaign is kind of a joke candidacy on fringe issues that no one should take uh, seriously. And I hope it doesn't, doesn't go well. Uh, Marianne Williamson has a serious program. She does not yet have a social base. So even though I respect her as a figure and I respect a lot of the issues she's uh, standing for, until it becomes clear to me that she's really tapping into and reaching an audience of working class people who are disaffected by the Biden administration, and until she starts to articulate um, an anti-establishment uh, kind of message to those 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 people that, that's resonating. It's not something that, you know, I, I personally think the left should be devoting its time to. But I, I definitely respect her right to run. I hope she gets her issues out. It seems like I know she's a um, viral star on TikTok and some other places and, and obviously reaching a young audience with that message but I guess I consider it maybe the, the modern day or the 2023-2024 corollary to the Dennis Kucinich runs, uh, which did actually matter and, and actually put on the, the map certain things like single-payer healthcare or, or at least brought it to the forefront in those debates. Well, now there's a, a new third-party effort, No Labels. Its
0: founding chairman is Joe Lieberman. Uh, he's told interviews that his group believes the American people, quote, are so dissatisfied with the choice of Presidents Trump or Biden that they want a third alternative.
2: Is this a serious uh, threat to Biden? I don't think it's a threat. There's always a threat of these things happening, My right? Bloomberg was really the one that people were worried about because he could throw so much money at it. But if you actually think about the last third party that got enough votes to matter, or the uh, last effort, it wasn't Nader, actually, it was um, a Ross Perot. And he was tapping into kind of a incohate, I wouldn't describe it as right wing, but incohate, populist energy, opposition to NAFTA, you know, really resonating uh, with people in some some way. I don't see Joe Lieberman being the (laughs) tribune of the people in that way. I don't see even wealthier suburbs, you could say, in places like New York or Connecticut. Maybe you could imagine them picking over some voters, but even then, probably not, because one, I think abortion is going to be a very important issue in this election, especially in these suburban areas. And the republican party and trump has staked out such radical positions it's really going to drive some of these middle-class constituencies you know cement their place in the democratic party and you know that's in the short term a good thing in the long term you know as you as you know i've I've always argued that there's some real risk in having a party trying a social democratic route to wealthy suburbs like scarsdale filled with (laughs) you know, upper middle class constituency that that doesn't want to pay more in taxes. Like it kind of it it is a big contradiction. But in in the short term, Lieberman isn't going to tap into a kind of uh, everyday working person's sensibility and isn't going to tap into that suburban vote. I just don't know where his support is going to come from. And finally, who's
0: next in line, especially among the progressives? You know, the last two elections we've had Bernie being astoundingly successful. Figure uh, and Bernie is still pushing. I mean, just recently he had a opinion piece in the Guardian: U.S. workers deserve a 32-hour working week. He's still pushing. He's not going to run anymore. But who else do we have in
2: you know on the bench? Well, Bernie is still doing fantastic work. So obviously he's pushing for the 32-hour work week. He was out today also demanding a $17 uh, minimum wage. There's a host of issues in which Bernie is really foregrounding these bread and butter, universal concerns. It matters and it, it resonates with with people. Now, I don't think there's a real successor to Bernie at the national level, at least from the left, or maybe even period, because because Harris, obviously, from the center isn't, isn't much of a um, an alternative to Biden either. But um. On the left, obviously, you know, Bernie is slightly older even than Biden. He has spawned a a lot of um, uh, successors, uh, people like AOC, um, other squad members, but none of them have really proven their electoral viability beyond deep blue districts. And, And I fear that None of them have learned the rhetorical lessons of, of Bernie Sanders, um, which is kind of that plain-spoken class struggle language that obviously is extremely left-wing, but could kind of transcend. The American version of Democrat Republican partisanship in terms of um, his 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 ability to connect to people's needs and to express left wing egalitarian ideas in a way that seems like it's common sense. You saw that with the repetition of his campaigns. Everyone knows a Bernie Sanders speech basically from heart. Millionaires and billionaires are the enemy. We're the only industrialized country that doesn't have healthcare for all. We need to fix that. We need to fight corporate greed. You know, there's a whole host. You could have a, a, a Bernie Sanders, you know, bingo. It is it, very, <laughs> it's v- very easy to reconstruct one of his um speeches. So obviously, we have a lot of work to do on the left. Building a viable national candidate, uh, getting both our, our candidates but our organizations ready to contest for power. Obviously, part of that is is building a base in a left wing trade union movement that does have the power and resources to shift political tides. So you saw that in a microcosm recently in Chicago, where a left labor based coalition, spearheaded by the Chicago Teachers Union, with the help of other union locals like SEIU and Unite out there. Um, that we really able to make a uh, difference in that election that resonated with a base of a multiracial base of, of people on the, the left in Chicago. Uh, kind of recreated in a sense, the voting block of the Harold Washington base, the first black mayor of Chicago over 40 years ago, ran in a uh, on, on a left wing platform. And I think you're seeing what that labor core can mean and and what its absence in a city like New York, where the unions didn't take a risk and make a big intervention in the mayor race, has has led to kind of a uh, centrist at best mayor and and in Eric Adams and in quite a progressive city. And you can imagine what these shifts in the labor movement and the UAW and the Teamsters and a host of other unions could mean if 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 that that power was tied to uh, real national uh, aspirations. And I, I think that's the future. And I think you need both. You need organizations like the Democratic Socialists of America and a host of other more single issue organizations uh, banded together. You need unions being willing to take risk and take um, uh, dangerous, in a sense, political stances. And you need that candidate recruitment to go from beyond candidates who could win at the local or even state level up to people who could win at at the federal level. And I think Bernie still has a role to play helping to cohere together that that new generation you know our revolution was supposed to be an effort in that direction and that obviously didn't didn't work out but um but there i still have hope but uh not a lot for 2024. it's, it's hard to imagine who would be the the, the challenger um uh, emerging baskar sunkara he's president of the
0: nation he wrote about biden for the guardian thank you baskar thanks for having me It's the same old story, this is Living in the USA, and I'm John Weiner talking about politics, thinking about the left. How to teach American history has probably never been more controversial than it is right now. Since the Black Lives Matter protests of summer 2020, at least four states have required black history to be part of the curriculum, and seven more have established new courses on Native American history or Asian American history, And meanwhile, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is campaigning for president, promising to stop woke history, stop teaching about slavery and its legacy of institutional racism. For comment, we turn to Adam Hochschild. He's an award-winning author. We've often talked about his books here. They include the classic King Leopold's Ghost about colonialism in Congo and my favorite, Bury the Chains, about how a small group of people started the movement that ended slavery in the British Empire and eventually everywhere. His most recent book is American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace, and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis, and he's a contributor to the New York Review, where he wrote recently about competing versions of American history. We reached him today at home in Berkeley, Adam Hochschild, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, remind us about Florida's Stop Woke Act and similar laws in other states. What is their declared objective?
3: Well, all over the country right now, we have the right wing sort of testing out different parts of the cultural battlefield. I think one of the things that kicked this off was in the wake of George Floyd's murder, there were statues that tumbled down everywhere, statues of Confederate heroes, of Robert E. Lee, of Jefferson Davis, and so forth. And a lot of people in the South especially, but not entirely in the South, are very attached to that history. And I think rising politicians like uh, Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida and elsewhere are seeing this part of the cultural battlefield as a place to keep on fighting the old civil war and in a way to fight a new civil war, where the claim they make is that uh, liberals and radicals and progressives of all kinds are trying to make us feel bad about ourselves as a country. And we should feel better about ourselves and proud about our history. So the latest round of the cultural battlefield is the history wars.
0: Ron DeSantis has explained that uh, their goal in Florida is to forbid teaching that could make, as they put it, someone feel guilty or ashamed about past actions by other members of the same race, color, sex, or national origin. Who is this someone who might feel guilty or ashamed? Do they mean white men born in the USA? I think they do.
3: And I think they are appealing very much to that part of the electorate. There's a deeper agenda behind this, which is what kind of America in the future they want to see.
0: And I understand that you found what you call the dream educational agenda for the right. This is the curriculum that has no guilt and no shame about uh, what white people have done. Where did you find this agenda?
3: Well, I was fascinated to find that for free, you could download uh, 3,268 pages of wow. advice for teachers of American history at every level from kindergarten through high school, from the website of Hillsdale College. And Hillsdale College, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, is a small Christian-oriented uh, almost entirely white right-wing college in Michigan, which has a very conservative curriculum focused on the great books, the classics of Western thought, that kind of thing. But they are very evangelical about preaching this part of the world outside of Hillsdale's quite small campus. The college is very well-endowed. Among their, their uh, contributors has been the family of uh Betsy DeVos, Trump's secretary of education, and her brother, Eric Prince, who's a Hillsdale graduate and the founder of the Blackwater Mercenary Group. And they and many other people have given Hillsdale huge amounts of money. It's got an endowment of almost a billion dollars, which is an enormous amount for a very small college. And they put out curriculum materials and other material for People wanting to teach American history
0: in their conservative worldview. And I understand that Hillsdale has something to do with Ron DeSantis's project in Florida.
3: Right. He has hired people from Hillsdale to help him revamp the Florida school curriculum. And so Hillsdale is sort of his intellectual consigliere in. Uh, trying to revamp Florida's educational system.
0: Well, you've read the 3,000 pages of the Hillsdale American History curriculum. Just want to ask you about some of the the flashpoints uh, here. What do they say about slavery?
3: To their credit, they acknowledge that slavery was a bad thing. And that it (laughs) could be very brutal and cruel to the people in it. Uh, But they seem to go out of their way to... Soften it in a couple of interesting ways. For instance, even though they announced they made clear that slavery was very cruel uh, to the slaves, they said nothing about the systematic, widespread rape that was associated with American slavery, as indeed in slavery, with slavery in almost any country where it's been practiced. So Thomas Jefferson's name is mentioned hundreds of times. Uh, during these thousands of pages, but Sally Hemings is never. They also soften it in other way. Uh, this 1776 curriculum, which is what these thousands of pages of stuff is called, uh, urges teachers to, and I'm quoting, consider with students the significance of the Constitution not using the word slave and instead using the word person. Refusing to use the word slave avoided giving legal legitimacy to slavery. The use of the word person
0: forced even slaveholders to recognize the humanity of the slave. Sean Wilentz wrote a book in part about this sentence in the Constitution and how it got there. We've talked about it on this show. It is true that there was a huge battle at the Constitutional Convention about whether to use the word person instead of the word slaves. And the slaveholders, of course, fought bitterly to prevent this from happening because they saw what the New Englanders were trying to do. But it certainly did not force slaveholders, as the Hillsdale curriculum says, to recognize the humanity of the slave. Absolutely. And of course, a lot of other things
3: in the Constitution, like the Three-Fifths Clause and the Fugitive Slave Clause, in fact, does force not just the slave states, but the other states to recognize those human beings as slaves and not as people.
0: And what does the um, 1776 curriculum say about Native Americans? It says, the
3: contact between indigenous North American and European civilizations resulted in both benefits and afflictions for Natives and colonists alike and was troubled by many misunderstandings. Oh, man.
0: <laughs> it was a hard time for both of them.
3: It was. You could almost <laughs> say there were many misunderstandings between Hitler and the Jews, there I mean, were, really.
0: that's yeah. true. And then more recently, uh, what do they say, for example, about FDR and the New Deal, which is sort of the model for progressives today about what government might be able to accomplish someday soon? Well, to their credit, they
3: include some of FDR's speeches, but they want you to take them in the right way, which is, from Hillsdale's point of view, to understand that the New Deal kind of was a further step in the process of creating a fourth branch of government called the administrative state, Uh. you know, where we have the three... Branches that those great framers of the Constitution thought of. And then in the 20th century and beyond, in a sinister way, this fourth branch, the administrative state, has snuck in. You know, they make analogies between people being regulated by the administrative state and the colonists rebelling against being regulated by the British king across the Atlantic Ocean.
0: The Constitution, you emphasize, is a very important part of the 1776 Hillsdale curriculum. You say they're defenders of the electoral college, which of course has been criticized by people like us as a profoundly anti-democratic institution, which of course indeed was the purpose of the founders to prevent direct election of the president by creating this complicated structure Why do the authors of the 1776 curriculum think that the Electoral College was a good idea? Oh,
3: and I'm quoting from the curriculum. It says you should tell middle and high school students that the Electoral College system has, quote, forced presidential candidates to address the concerns, not merely of large population centers like cities, but of rural and more remote populations. Now, this doesn't mention, of course, nowhere in all these thousands of pages is it mentioned that it's possible for somebody to win the electoral vote and lose the popular vote, something we've seen happen a number of times now in recent decades. And incidentally, when we had the last such flap over an election result, which was, of course, a 2020 uh, election result, where Uh, Donald Trump supporters were trying to introduce, you know, fake slates of electors supposedly elected in states where he lost by a narrow margin. The majority leader of the Michigan State Senate testified that one of the people who pressured him to submit to the House of Representatives a false alternate slate of pro-Trump electors was Robert E. Norton II, vice president of Hillsdale College.
0: Wow. And in your critique of the 1776 Hillsdale College curriculum in the New York Review, you say the most important thing about it really is not what's in it, it's what's not in it. Please explain.
3: Well, I think we all know that vast amounts of power in this country are not political. Uh, There was a study done by the Institute for Policy Studies a few years ago that showed that the three richest Americans, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, and Warren Buffett, today I think Elon Musk would be in the mix even at the very top of it. The personal wealth held by those three guys was equal to that of the personal wealth held by the bottom half, that is more than 150 million people of the American population economically. Well, when you have a a country where the distribution of wealth is so unjust, you know, wealth is a kind of power. It's something that gets passed from one generation to the next. It influences what your choices are in life. It, It influences how much of the world is open to you, what the possibilities are. This is a kind of power that simply doesn't get considered. When you focus on the three branches of government and the Senate and the House of Representatives and the Supreme Court and so on, and they're vast power centers. We all know, for instance, the extent to which Amazon has become in the last 20 years a part of everybody's life. The power that one company has to change the face of communities by putting mom and pop businesses out of work. These are the kinds of power that just focusing on the genius of the founding fathers, simply get ignored. But I think the wielding of economic power and the enormous influence it has over our lives is just a crucial part of the American story today.
0: The right has their ideas about what young people should learn about American history, and of course, so does our side. And reshaping our understanding of our past has been the work most recently of the 1619 Project, launched originally by the New York Times Magazine in response to the Black Lives Matter movement in 2019 under the leadership of Nicole Hannah-Jones. Their basic argument is that slavery and its legacy have been a tremendous force, continuing to shape our present as well as our past. This started out as a special issue of the magazine, it became a big best-selling book, a podcast, a children's book. Now it's a six-part documentary series on Hulu that will be shown in schools, in some schools, for you know the next decade. You have watched the Hulu series. It's very different from a textbook because it features Nicole Hannah-Jones herself as the narrator and protagonist. Um, What did you think of the TV series on Hulu of the 1619 Project? What does it accomplish, and maybe what does it leave out?
3: There's some excellent material in it, and I would recommend that series to people. To me, the most forceful part of that six-part series was the fourth episode, has the title Capitalism. And there is an extraordinary juxtaposition in that segment. At one point, Hannah Jones is talking to a Berkeley historian named Caitlin Rosenthal. They're at an archive in Louisiana looking at the uh, handwritten ledger that is recording the week's plantings at a Mississippi slave plantation called Pleasant Hill. And you go down the column of each column of the ledger. There's a slave's name, just one name. Slaves didn't have last names. And then day by day for the week, Monday through Saturday, the number of pounds of cotton that that man or woman, that enslaved man or woman picked that day. You know, the daily tally, their labor being translated into measurable units that their owner can keep track of. Then the film cuts to a scene in an Amazon warehouse. And then we are talking to one of the organizers of the successful drive to unionize workers at the Amazon warehouse on Staten Island in New York. And this guy is also talking about picking things, picking items off the shelf, and how Amazon is monitoring the number of items per hour that you pick. And you realize here again, a giant corporation is monetizing the units of labor that can be extracted from an individual human being. And of course, you don't pick enough of these items in an hour, you lose your job. Now, I don't mean to say that Amazon workers are slaves, they're not, you know, they're paid, they go home at the end of the day, they're you know, free to watch TV commercials for products they can't afford. (laughs) But there is something eerie about the continuity there and the inhumanity with which these people are treated. And I really do think that the efforts by uh, people at these ununionized workplaces who've started to organize in the last couple of years, Amazon, Starbucks, Trader Joe's, and many more, are really in the forefront of the battles for social justice in this country today.
0: Adam Hochschild, his article, History Bright and Dark, appears in the New York Review. Adam, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. It's it for today's living in the usa our social media maven is renee reynolds kpfk's programming traffic director is matt perez thanks as always to rye cooter for our theme music mambo sinuendo living in the usa is recorded and produced at our blythe avenue studios in los angeles if you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA.